Hello, I'm Nina Kelly. Welcome to this II podcast special with Selena Flavius, author of Black Girl Finance. Selena went from dealing with thousands of pounds of debt to launching her own financial coaching company, Black Girl Finance, in April 2019, closely followed by a book of the same name, which is the subject of our discussion today. Last year, Selena was named the British Bank Awards Online Financial Influencer of the Year. She also has her own podcast and you can find her on Instagram at Black Girl Finance UK. So Selena, your book, Black Girl Finance, Let's Talk Money, is aimed at black women in the UK. What drove you to write it and which unique financial difficulties do black women in this country face? Oh, such a good question. Um, a number of different reasons. Um, one of the reasons for me for writing the book was the fact that I grew up in a kind of household, just to tell you about my background. You know, my parents were born abroad. Uh, one was from St. Lucia, the other's from Barbados. So they both came here as teenagers, came to the UK as teenagers. And um, I just grew up in a household that didn't really talk about money much. So when I was writing the book and creating the platform, I really wanted to talk about money or create a safe space for women, black women in particular, to talk about money in an unapologetic way. So that was one of the reasons. And and there are also, I know of other women who have similar backgrounds to me who also experience the same kind of silence around money. And then in terms of the unique challenges of black women, when writing the book and even before starting the platform, I did a lot of research about how women fare when it comes to money. In addition, how do black women fare when it comes to money in the UK? And I was really surprised, shocked and, you know, disappointed to see statistics around the gender pay gap, which I think gets a lot more prominence, but there's also uh, an ethnicity pay gap. So I really wanted to write a book just so that women are aware of these kind of intersecting issues so that they can, when they are kind of navigating their careers and their finances, you know, put their best foot forward and just make sure that they are asking for things such as, you know, pay rises and just being really cognizant of what may be happening. Because again, I should say, um, we're very nuanced. Everyone is very different. Everyone will have different experiences. But if we are regularly seeing these statistics that point to a similar thing, I think we need to be aware of it. And that way we can be empowered and make some really sensible financial decisions to negate uh, any kind of negative impacts from the statistics that I was seeing. So yes. You explain that you were raised in a working class Caribbean household and that this shaped your own money mindset. Could you explain your own money mindset and some of the money messages that you have struggled to shrug off the most? Yes. So, and I, I talk very candidly about this in, in the book. I think I think there are some kind of mindsets that associate money and, and wealth and maybe investing or business ownership with kind of not being for us or for a particular category of, of person, be it being from a very humble working class background. Just for some context, you know, my dad currently is a bus driver and my mum growing up, you know, did cleaning jobs. So being from very, very kind of humble kind of employment, I think you can feel excluded from certain places and from doing certain things. And, you know, I think that's just one example of kind of maybe having a a bit of a negative mindset based on kind of environment. And and it's something that I really had to work on and and, and challenge. And again, um, with kind of silence around money, even doing things like, you know, asking for that pay rise, being aware and being cognizant that it's something that I can and should be doing. Again, that's another battle that I had to kind of 
overcome and then even investing as well. I grew up in an environment where no one was investing, no one was talking about it. So it took me a very long time between, you know, I mean, I was working hard and a decent salary after I'd paid off the debt. You, you mentioned in, in the intro that I'd gone from struggling with debt to, you know, writing the kind of finance book, etc. It was a process and, and, and part of that process was me knowing that I wanted to start investing. But again, probably the gap between wanting to invest and actually taking the leap and the plunge to start investing was quite wide just because of some sort of feelings around okay can I do this is this something that I do and again particularly if you're from an environment whereby investing is not really spoken about you know having a good job getting on the property ladder making sure that your bills are paid on time that's the norm and doing anything extra really wasn't a discussion so taking that leap to, to start investing was quite a big thing for me. You share your own experience of debt in the book and how you were too ashamed to talk to your twin sister about it and how you then went on to dig yourself out of that financial hole. What is your advice for others who are dealing with the same problem, especially given that we're in a post-pandemic environment with spiralling inflation and rising household bills? Yeah, so um, I mean, my message would be it's really important, especially at this time with the issues that you've mentioned, to to try and get it to a manageable level if you can and try and keep on top of it and don't bury your head in the sand. When I was struggling with debt, although I'm from a very, very close family, I've got a twin sister who's probably, you know, one of the closest people to me in my life. I also speak about the fact in the book that I was living with my older sister. We'd managed to get on the property ladder together. And again, I was struggling with these issues, the issues around debt by myself. And it was it was very embarrassing. And, and again, it's just to say, if you are experiencing debt, don't try not to be too hard on yourself and try not to bury your head in the sand. Speak to your creditors. I've feel like once I'd made that initial call and set up a repayment plan for my debt, the weight lifted. And this was after a, a quite an extended period of time whereby I wasn't, wasn't answering telephone calls, you know, because I knew it would be like a debt department calling me. I wasn't opening letters because in my head, I knew what it would say anyway. And it's a really kind of disempowering place to be and I know it's very scary to actually face those sort of demons you know when it comes to debt but I'd encourage you just to keep the dialogue open with any creditors that you have also I'm a big advocate of seeking help and support so there are some um, debt charities that are out there that will help you work things out and even do some advocacy on your behalf if you need them to so whether that's them you know giving you a template so that you can write to a, a creditor or actually you know you may go down the, the route of maybe them using them to you know negotiate things yourself you may decide to do that but there, there's always an option and just really dealing with it would be my main advice it's clear from reading your book that you are passionate about empowering ordinary women to grab the investment ball by the horns and take control of their finances. And one of the quotes that has stayed with me is, you don't need a degree to talk about money or to work out your budget to get on the property ladder or to start investing. What do you think could help encourage more women to start investing? Oh, I just think making them aware. If you're listening, if you're a woman and you're, and you're listening right now, that, you know, research shows that women are, you know, we're not just brilliant at savings. We're also brilliant at investing when we do invest. Um, there's research that shows that women, the performance is, is better than men. So when we do get going, we're really good at it. And then also, I think if you think about that, you know, who tends to handle the household budget and make the household decisions. Again, it tends to be women. So it's really weird because we live in this space whereby, you know, a lot of the messaging when it comes to women uh, about money tends to be about 
you know, things that we're doing wrong in terms of like overspending. We're always kind of got this message about overspending and secret secret spending and, and all of that kind of stuff and, you know, saving and being more frugal. And again, that probably sends out a message that we're doing something wrong. But actually, you know, we are... <clears throat> Like I mentioned, you know, research shows we're, we're very good at saving. Uh, then we're very good at investing. We're making lots of household decisions, uh, financial household decisions. So I think the shift for me came when I kind of looked at the fact that, well, actually, yes, I was struggling with debt, but, you know, I managed to, you know, I had a son. I managed to raise him. He, he was fed, watered. He had a roof over his head. And that was based on me. And I think sometimes if we just take some time to stop and look at kind of what we're doing, how well we're, we are handling our situation. Sometimes it gives you that extra belief in yourself. And um, I think when it comes to, you know, I often speak to clients who are, you know, they, they don't have debt. They're uh, really good at saving. They're working really hard. And sometimes the next step, the next kind of logical step is to, you know, get their money working harder for them because of, you know, inflation and all of that, cost of living and and, and, and everything. So um, I think just having some belief in yourself and kind of looking at how well you are doing. In the chapter on investing, you write that investing is for everyone, but only at the right time. What checklist would you suggest people run through before they begin investing? So I would think about your debts that you have, because sometimes uh, kind of the interest that you're paying on debt is a lot higher than any returns you're going to get from investing. So, you know, some very expensive debt include, you know, credit card debt, overdraft debts, any kind of maybe store cards, they can be quite expensive. So you could be paying, you know, 20% interest rate plus for, for those types of things. Before the pandemic, I remember that the government was, you know, I don't know if it's the government or, you know, a lot of people were receiving letters from their overdraft providers just to say the um, interest rate was increasing. This was before the pandemic and probably it's not been on our minds, but I remember it as someone that deals <laughs> with finance. So it can be very expensive. So it may be worthwhile just tackling the debt first before starting to invest. Also making sure that you've got money to handle an emergency. As you mentioned earlier, the, the financial crisis that we're in, things being more expensive. One of the things that tends to go during a crisis is savings. And part of it is probably because everything's becoming more expensive. But at the same time, if you've got a little bit that you can put a, put aside for an emergency fund or just a bit of a financial buffer for you, for yourself, I think that's super important to still do and maintain if you can afford to, given the financial pressures. So I say definitely emergency fund, weighing, you know, doing the maths when it comes to your debts and just working out, okay, if I start investing right now, Am I struggling with lots of expensive debt that it may not be the right time to do? I say all of that, but then at the same time, it's never been easier to start investing. There's lots of apps and things that you can use whereby, you know, you may be focusing a lot of your money on paying off big debts, but you can start investing from, you know, like one pound, five pounds, 10 pounds a month. So if there is a little wriggle room, if there's a little bit of income left over, you may put a little bit aside and just see how you feel as well. I think sometimes we sometimes we have to just do it to, to understand it as well. So and, and it's never been easier. So the barrier to entry for investing is, is quite low, but it's all personal decisions, really. You cite angel investing as one potential avenue for investors to explore and suggest that readers might consider supporting startups owned by black women. Do you support any yourself? I do, yes. So there's a, an amazing sort of media company, organisation called Black Ballad, and they write amazing articles about black women and the black female experience in the UK in general. So 
and I just think it's amazing. I, I love reading different stories about black women. You know, we experience different things. Like I say, we're very nuanced and I just think it's a great platform. So yeah, I was happy to kind of invest in that. Your book covers essential subjects such as budgeting and financial goals, but there is little mention of ESG investing, environmental, social and governance. Obviously, there isn't space for everything, but do you have a view on the topic? Yeah, I, I think it's super important. I think, I, I mean, I guess it extends to even outside investing. You know, I want to make sure that I'm using brands and products and services from reputable, you know, companies that aren't exploiting their their workers, aren't exploiting the environment, are having a, a positive impact in some way, shape or form. And I think the same, you know, if someone makes the same decision to incorporate that kind of thinking when it comes to their investment, I think that's, that's okay. I think sometimes I read an article that says that ESG investing, you know, gives you great returns. Other times I read an article that says, ah, not so much. So um, in terms of um, whether it's a good financial thing, I think you have to do your research (laughs) about what you're investing in. I think it's become, for kind of retail investors, it's become definitely a bit more of of an issue and a a request and a want and a desire. And I think that's a a good thing. So yeah, I, I think it's important. I think as with any decision we make, you know, thinking about the social impact of it, uh, as a consumer and as an investor, I think is, 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 is important. And ESG is a way. Also, I should just add here, also just the how you would rate, you know, a company being good in that department as well. There's lots of different scales. I don't think it's a really unified approach as of yet. And there's a thing called greenwashing as well. <laughs> so there's lots to think about when it comes to ESG investing. But I think the intention behind it is, is, is good and positive and amazing. But there's there's still a lot to consider. And if you're new to it, if you're a kind of a retail investor, there's probably a lot of research to do. <laughs> You don't talk about investment trusts in the book other than REITs, real estate investment trusts. Is this a deliberate omission? Kind of. I know that uh, within the community, a lot of people want to get on the the property ladder. Uh, Just my personal experience within my family, you know, my mum managed to get on the property ladder as a single mother by herself using the right to buy scheme. So she managed to do that. So growing up, it was a thing of, you know, getting on the property ladder. And I know that in wide conversations, there's loads of conversations about ways of getting on the property ladder. But, you know, at this moment in time, not everyone will have a deposit. So talking about REITs was a way for me to have that conversation for the those who maybe do not have, you know, a deposit right away. It's a, it's a way of dipping your toes in the water with investing. In terms of why the other kinds of trusts were omitted, there's just, just a lot to wrap your head around and there wasn't enough space in the book to, to write about it. But um, I think if, if you're interested in, in, in trust, then, you know, do your research. And I'm sure there's lots of other resources out there that can help you to understand them and um, inform your decisions about investing in them. Indeed, on our own platform, we have many resources exactly. and yes. for investment trust investing. <laughs> yep. In the opening pages of Black Girl Finance, you ask, where are the black female voices in finance? What do you think could help increase diversity in the financial services industry? I think... Definitely having more visibility would be uh, super, super important. So for my organisation, last year we started to host an event called Black Girl Finance Fest. And a lot of our speakers, and it's like a day-long event of different speakers, and a lot of our speakers were black women who have lots of experience within the industry. I just felt it was very important to showcase the fact that, um, you know, there are women in this industry that is very much 
kind of white and male dominated. I know that for myself as a teenager, when I was deciding on what A-levels to do, I toyed with the idea of doing an economics A-level, but I didn't because just at the time it was, I was going to say it's the 80s, but no, I was born in the 80s. It was the 90s, (laughs) kind of late 90s. And just again, kind of the kind of environment I was in, there weren't many kind of black women perhaps studying, uh, you know, economics or and so I, so I just think, you know, having that kind of visibility, those role models is super important. And that's what I try and showcase through the events and through the speakers that we have. I think for outside industries, I think it'd be good if they partnered with organizations such as kind of myself or organizations that do have that link in to be able to um, provide that diversity is, is super important. So I think definitely partnering up, making sure that you're looking at things such as a kind of gender pay gaps, ethnicity pay gaps in your organization, and seeing where seeing where the glass ceiling seems to be hit, I want to say. So if you if if you're noticing that there are, you know, women in an organization get to just a certain point, you know, I think that's something that we can you, you should be thinking about and, and doing something to, to change. And again, with those from different uh, kind of backgrounds as well I think that's something that you can look at and and do and I think that's why it's important to measure gender pay gaps ethnicity pay gaps and finance is notorious for these gaps as well you know so I think we should be really clear they're one of the industries that's really bad when it comes to the the pay gaps so I think it's super important for finance (laughs) to do something about it. Finally as a successful Finfluencer How do you feel about all financial social media influencers being lumped together as untrustworthy? I think I'm mixed about it (laughs) because I know a lot of organisations who are trying to, you know, use social media, which which we all have access to, you know, large one man bands have have access to social media to kind of grow their business. uh, And so do large organisations. And obviously prior to being lumped lumped all together it is a way of you know these larger organizations or more established organizations to link in with those from you know who would not traditionally be their customers so I think that you know social media is is needed it can be a force for good but at at the same time wherever you're getting your kind of financial product services you know guidance you tend to see more more guidance than advice on these platforms anyway I think you should be cautious and do your due diligence making sure that you you, before you make a a purchase a product service if it's number one if it seems too good to be true then you know proceed with caution if there's no kind of contact information or no reviews no one that you can talk to again proceed with caution so I think like I said a mix I know that there's a lot of organizations that that use social media for good because they want to have a, a positive impact but I think for the end user, you do have to kind of proceed with caution and, and, and just do your due diligence. Selena, many thanks for your time and those valuable insights. That's Selena Flavius, author of Black Girl Finance. And thank you all for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe and you can find loads of ideas for planning your own financial future at ii.co.uk. 